Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Surprise Jab Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ruger, surprising you with new topics every single week and jabbing you with your daily dose of UFC. And UFC is the primary focus of this episode. We're coming off of a pretty good week overall. I very much enjoyed it. We did two episodes earlier, one two and a half hours with the great Jane Watson and Cole Walker. Very fun episode. We will have to run back those two on the podcast any time, but just a typical episode today. Um, going to be recapping uh, episode seven of Dana White's Contender Series, talking about some new fights that were announced, going through a surprise topic. As always, we've been on fire with the surprise topics, and of course, giving our official predictions for UFC Fight Night, Fazeev versus Gamrot, which goes down this Saturday. Going to be a good weekend indeed. And some huge fights dropped mid-podcast last night. I already mentioned it on the last episode, but we got to go into them a bit. Starting off November 11th, UFC 295, Jerry Prochaska will be taking on Alex Pajera for the mm, vacant light heavyweight championship. That's right, Jamal Hill is uh, vacated the belt, unfortunately, because of his injury, but... In his place, we get Jerry versus Pajara, which I love. You know, it's it's going to be a good fight. Certainly beefs up this UFC 295 card, with, which is currently lacking. I mean, obviously, John Jones and Stipe will carry. Obviously, this will carry the card, too. But I do want some more fights. I mean, Roman Dolodizze was supposed to fight Derek Brunson. He now doesn't have an opponent. You have Jessica Andrade versus... Uh, Mackenzie Dern, which I, I guess could be a main card fight, but I'm really looking for one or more big fights, but I'm happy this one's going down. December 16th, UFC 296 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Leon Edwards versus Colby Covington for the welterweight championship of the world. Can't believe that fight's actually happening this year. It's about damn time. Last time Colby had a fight even booked and happened was March 2022. As for Leon, he fought earlier in March of this year. So, I mean, you're going to be looking at a, what is it, nine-month layoff for Leon, but it's a, a year and a half for freaking Colby Covington. So, so happy he's back fighting. That's going to be a great fight. Uh, I don't know how it's going to go, personally. I mean, I'm a Colby Covington fan. Leon Edwards kind of beat Usman twice, though. So, it's just a complicated thing. I don't know exactly who to pick. In the co-main event for UFC 296, Alexander Pantoa versus Brandon Royval. A rematch. Very happy that the flyweight champion is defending his belt. And Brandon Royval getting a title shot makes me so happy. I personally think Amir Albazi deserves it over him. But I'm not going to say a thing because I like Brandon Royval. And I'm glad he's getting the title shot. Dana just had to drop those out of nowhere on us. Very much appreciated, Dana. I always like to be informed about the fights I'm uh, going to be watching. So certainly delightful um the december 2nd card which is rumored to be in minnesota i just i they announced that misha tate is fighting julia avila on there i guess misha tate's a somewhat okay name she's kind of fallen off you also have punaheli soriano versus dustin stolfus announced and they had some other random women's fights so currently 0 for 3 on fights i would buy a hundred dollar ticket to go watch so we'll see what other fights they announce for that card day by day comes up we're actually under three months away from it which is super exciting but i need to know uh who's fighting on it before i even debate buying a ticket because i really want to i would love to attend a ufc event live but if it's not a, if it's not a fighter i enjoy plus i'd, I'd want to see multiple fighters i enjoy 
I will take a lot into account before I spend a lot of money on a ticket. But it is what it is. I'll tell you what I did spend some time on was watching Dana White's Contender Series. A very good episode, episode 7 of 10 for season 7, which has been delivering pretty much all year. I've enjoyed it, and you already know, I took notes, I watched every fight. I, ha I have to. I have to analyze my predictions that I made. Picks-wise, we go perfect. We go 4-0. and There was one draw. But other than that, very happy with all my uh, thoughts I gave, everything I went with. And the only thing I didn't get right was who got contracts and who didn't on only one of the fights. So pretty good overall. I say let's dive in and check out all the fights. Starting off, we had Igor De Silva versus Hanata. I think it's Hanata Silva, which is going to be a... Ooh, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself, okay? So, Igor versus Hanata in the flyweight division. I mean, t round one, De Silva's landing takedowns with ease. Silva's having some good scrambling. Pretty even first round. I gave Igor round number one. Now, round two, coming out the gate, Igor De Silva is swinging so hard. He drops Hanata once. He keeps going after him. I think he... Did he take him down or not? No, he didn't take him down. He, By the way... Igor landed 5 for 5 on takedowns in round number 1. Super impressive stuff. I mean, significant strikes in round number 2, 52 to 9. Igor's putting the pace on him, coming at him again. He drops him a second time, lands a couple follow-up punches. The ref says that's it. I cannot wait to watch Igor De Silva in the UFC flyweight division. Doing phenomenal. Oh my gosh, this was such a good performance from him. And he improves to 8 and 0, oh, 100% finish rate. This kid's only 20 years old. And Dana was like, you know what? I don't like taking young kids, but there's something about this kid. He always says it. There's something about this kid. He had to sign him. So Igor De Silva gets the contract. And Dana was praising him. And I predicted he would get the contract. And he did. Loved what I saw from Igor De Silva. Heading into our next fight of the evening was a lightweight matchup between Kanan Krusheski. Kanan Krusheski, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, Kanan, as he took on Dylan Mantello. And coming out of the gate, swinging hard, Krusheski somehow took his back. It was kind of a takedown, wasn't really a takedown, but basically just got on his back, locked up a rear naked choke, and put Dylan Mantello to sleep. And Kanan Krusheski gets the victory, 15-1 and one now record. For Kanan and Dana said that he he was so hype on Kanan when he was talking about his like pre uh, post fight analysis of sorts, he was loving everything Kanan did in this fight, and I'm very happy Kanan will be joining the UFC in the lightweight division. But I mean, just a simple fight. I mean, they come out swinging, they're punching. Kanan lands a takedown, of somewhat takes his back, locks in a naked choke, and that was it. Kanan gets a contract. I mean, there's just not much to say. And as for Dylan, I did feel bad for him. He had Charlie Campbell in his corner, who'd been coming off a huge win at UFC Noche. So, it is what it is. By the way, Dana White saying UFC Noche will be a yearly thing now for the UFC. So, expect every September, uh, around or near Mexican Independence Day, to have a UFC Noche-style event. Very much looking forward to more of those. And here we go from two... Excellent fights, two finishes, to a very, very weird fight. So I was going with Talita Alencar in her fight against Stephanie Luciano. Um, let's start with round one. Alencar gets on top, having a lot of control time, uh, three minutes. 
I mean, Stephanie landed more total strikes, but I mean, this was control time for Talita. No official submission attempts, but she was working. Round two comes around. Alencar in ground control wraps up three and a half minutes of control time. Two for nine on takedowns. I mean, Talita was up 2-0 at this point. She was clearly up 2-0. And then Stephanie Luciano said, yeah, screw it. I'm going for broke. Landed one takedown for two and a half minutes of control time. Defended 10 of Talita's takedowns over 10. Outstruck her 69 to 11. Significant strikes 54 to 9. Stephanie was on fire. And the judges scored a draw. Absolutely crazy. Stephanie down two rounds. Fights back to get a 10-8. And Dana said, hey, look at this. This round three is a 10-8. Not whatever round five was with Valentina Shevchenko versus Alexa Grasso. So a lot of controversial words from Dana, but very much happy that... Um, Actually, I wasn't happy because I picked Alita, but in I did not think either of these women, either of these women, were gaining a contract. But Dana said he was so impressed with Stephanie Luciano, he wanted to get her in the UFC. So Stephanie Rondina Luciano gets a contract. Welcome to the women's strawweight division, Stephanie. Um, and he honestly described Luciano as having that ick factor, which is just high praise from the boss Dana White. Very much a very much a good moment, but as for fight-wise, just an average fight. Heading into our fourth fight of the evening, we had Jacoby Jones taking on, uh, what's his name, Daniel Allen. I'd been, I'd been pronouncing his name wrong on our uh, preview of him, but yes, Daniel Allen took on Jacoby Big Toe Jones. Round one, um, honestly, all I saw was Allen was landing more to the head, uh, just outstruck him in round one, 38 to 28. Insignificant and total strikes. Daniel Allen wins round one. Nothing much to it. Uh, round two comes around. Jacoby Jones landing a bit more. Uh, 39 strikes to 32. Jacoby wins round two, so it's 1-1. Hanging into round three. Although two judges did see it 30-27. So Jacoby did go over to on takedowns. I don't know if that played a role. But round three, the most decisive round. Dal Dylan, Daniel Allen. Gosh, I... I don't know who Dylan Allen is, but I keep saying his name. Daniel Allen outstrikes him 52 to 22, goes two for three on takedowns, and the man who trains with Khabib in D.C. out of uh, AKA gets the victory. But nothing impressive, and even Dana White said that Allen just needs more experience. He is only um, it's five and zero now, so little experience fighting wise. But uh, Dana says no for the contract. I agree. You know, if I'm not seeing anything impressive, I'm not saying you should go out and give a contract. So sorry to Daniel, but um, not this time, man. You're young, you're young though. All right, you're young. Only five professional fights. And by the way, Daniel Cormier. Actually, he's not young in age though. But what Dana used was that DC first got into MMA at 30 years old. So don't count Daniel Allen out. And he trains with DC. Let's get into the main event. It was my most favorite, my most exciting, no matter what grammatical errors I just said there. Shamil Gazeev. Gaziev. Shamil Gaziev, I said it right. Took on Greg Velasco. Oh my goodness. Quite possibly six seconds into the round, the first punch Shamil threw, he drops Greg Velasco with. Absolutely crazy. Greg goes to the ground. He's in scramble mode. He reverses. He ends up on top control. Is just trying to control Shamil. Shamil finds his way to his back, locks in a rear naked choke, and in two minutes and 38 seconds, Shamil gets the victory. He improves to 11-0. and 0. Just absolutely crazy stuff. 
from Shamil Giziyev, his third submission. And out of his 11 victories, we now have 10 of those by finish. Shamil Giziyev is a problem for the heavyweight division. Dana had little to say. He just said he likes Shamil and he wants to give him a contract. And Shamil Giziyev, welcome to the UFC. And he already says he wants to fight on that UFC 295 card in November. Count me in. He's an exciting, exciting man. I'm honestly, I could see him taking out a couple of the heavyweights right now. So from one fight from Shamil, I could see him beating the number 15, number 14, number 13, 12, 11. I'd give him up to the number 11 spot in the heavyweight division for guys he could take out. Holy crap. Shamil gets my uh, favorite performance of the night. So out of our uh, five fights on the card, we give out four contracts. Igor Da Silva. Kanan Kurishki, Stephanie Luciano, and Shamil Gaziaf. Good episode of Dana White's Contender Series. I mean, I wouldn't say anything spe- special per se. The Shamil performance was good. Uh, the Kanan performance, Igor performance. But, you know, the first draw in Contender Series history, I think, uh, the broadcast team said. So very, mu- very much happy that uh, they're setting records as the uh, seasons progress. I mean, we're already in Season 7, Episode 7. We only got three more weeks of Dana White's Contender Series, but it's ones like these you gotta appreciate. And yeah, it's it's winding to an end. I'll have to go back through this season once it's over, say basically who's made an impact. But there have been so many alum from the show, pretty much on every card you can catch someone who's fought on the Contender Series. I mean, I'm gonna click on a random person. Who's fighting on the card tonight? Cody Brundage. He fought on uh, season four, episode five of the Contender Series. So I mean, and I didn't even play that. Just live did that now, and he had fought on the Contender Series. So keep your eyes out for any of these people. I mean, even if they lose, they can still get into the UFC. It's 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 a fun program. I very much enjoy Dana White's Contender Series, and what I've also been enjoying has been the surprise topics. I mean. More Unsolved Mysteries of American History from Jamestown to Jimmy Hoffa by Paul Aaron has been such a good book. I have enjoyed it very much so. I mean, all his, all his things he's talked about have been so good, but I'm on the final chapter today. And the final chapter is one that we have to mention. It involves a very, very good case, a very good um, conspiracy theory, I mean... Just an interesting mystery, or well, if you will. But first, let me just talk about some of the ones I didn't talk about that I found pretty interesting. One of them being, did Abraham Lincoln provoke the attack on Fort Sumter? Um, it dived into how the battle of the Civil War began and how it continued long after. If Abraham Lincoln wanted to provoke an attack from the Confederates. Very interesting story there. Who lost and who found the lost order when uh, General Lee's plans fell into the hands of an enemy? It led to the bloodiest day of the Civil War. That was a very entertaining one. Skipping ahead to um, was Sitting Bull murdered? It had to deal with the Sioux chief, uh, Sitting Bull, who uh, actually defeated General Custer, but then suspiciously died at the hands of reservation police. That was a very good one. What sank the Luciana, uh, the, you know, the Luciana, it was the, the ship that a German torpedo hit, but some people suspect a conspiracy to draw America into World War I. 
certainly very good. Uh, one was, why didn't the Allies bomb Auschwitz? Did the United States abandon the Jews? That was a very interesting chapter. Who was to blame for the Bay of Pigs, which had to deal with uh, JFK's um, connection to the CIA and how they were both just trying to decide how to deal with Castro and they butted heads. Super good there. Who killed Martin Luther King Jr.? That was a good one. I was debating doing who killed MLK Jr. or doing the one I'm going to tell you in a second, and I went with the latter. And another one was were prisoners of war left behind in Vietnam? And that one really made you think about just what goes on with the higher-ups of this country. It's very good stuff. I recommend this book. There's 30 chapters, 30 mysteries. And they just get better as they go along. But the final one we're going to end with, I figured it'd be good for the podcast. We're a sports podcast. Was O.J. Simpson guilty? Oh, my goodness. I was I was excited to read into this one. It's certainly something that's even debated to this day. I mean, O.J. is free. He's on social media. He's an absolute menace. I, I don't even know <laughs> who let this man own social media he is such a character but let's dive into it was oj simpson guilty we have to set the scene though even before the trial began most americans certainly most white americans believed oj simpson murdered his ex-wife nicole as well as an unfortunate bystander ron goldman after all 95 million television viewers followed the slow motion chase of the white ford bronco that ended in his arrest gosh i've seen so many parodies of that continuing after um afterwards in the bronco were aj oj's aj's someone in my class oj's passport a fake goatee and mustache and more than eight thousand dollars in cash all pretty clear indications that he wasn't heading for the nearest police station. He was trying to run, clearly. The jury had not yet been selected when a book by Nicole's friend, Faye Resnick, soared to the number one spot on the bestseller list, knocking Pope John Paul II down to number two and informing Americans of Simpson's history of beating his wife. And once the trial finally got underway, Americans saw a parade of expert witnesses present the physical evidence, shoe prints, matching a pair of OJ-owned, um, stamped in the blood at the murder scene, uh, Nicole's blood on a sock in the bedroom, Goldman's blood in OJ's Bronco, OJ's hair on a cap next to the bodies, and on Goldman's shirt, the bloody gloves, one, one found between the bodies and the other still holding the victim's hair, outside of OJ's house. One DNA expert testified that the blood found near the victims, which matched OJ's, would match only one out of 170 million people. The blood on the sock, which matched Nicole's, would match that of only one out of 6.8 million people. More people, Dominic Dunn, the author, noted, than there were on Earth at the time, I mean. So, when after more than nine months of testimony, the jury took under four hours to reach its unanimous verdict, the reason seemed clear. Race. The case was lost, Newsweek explained, virtually the day the predominantly African-American jury was sworn in. Prosecutor Christopher Dargan agreed I could see in their eyes the need to settle a score. Wow, they really made it, Rachel. Even defense attorney Robert Shapiro jumped on the bandwagon. Not only did we play the race card, he told Barbara Walters on the day the verdict was announced, we dealt it from the bottom of the deck. In October 1995, when the jurors decide Simpson was not guilty, it seemed certain that time would confirm their bias and his guilt. But the verdict of history has turned out to be far from unanimous i mean 
I had not realized race was a part of this. I ju- you just know about the O.J. Simpson case. I guess we don't really know the specifics. It was kind of before my generation's time. I was born in 2002. I didn't even watch O.J. play football. So, uh, very interesting. Continuing. Resnick's book, Nicole Brown Simpson, Diary of a Life Interrupted, was published in October 1994, five months after the murders, and right in the middle of jury selection. In one sense, it obviously helped the prosecution by providing a clear motive for the murders. Resnick portrayed O.J. as a womanizer and wife-beater whose jealousy only increased after the divorce. I can't take this, Faye, Resnick quoted Simpson. I mean it. I'll kill that bitch. Wow, O.J. Though Judge Lance Ito temporarily suspended jury selection and pleaded with the television television networks to cancel interviews with Resnick, this only made people, including would-be jurors, all the more eager to read the book. And ironically, the book may have done more for the defense than for the prosecution. Prosecutor Marsha Clark was furious with Resnick for having joined the parade of potential witnesses who took cash for trash. Moreover, Resnick's tales of her own and Nicole's drug abuse tainted her credibility and the victim's image. Fearing what defense attorneys would do with this, Clark decided not to put Resnick on the stand. The prosecution's case suffered another blow when Ito ruled the judge inadmissible some of the evidence of O.J.'s abuse. This included Nicole's call to the Sojourn Counseling Center, a battered woman's shelter in Santa Monica, California, to complain that O.J. was stalking her. Nicole called the center on July 5th, just five days before her death. I mean, come on. Come on, just hearing this evidence, you gotta be kidding me. Still, Ito did allow some evidence of Simpson's abuse, and that's what prosecutors led with when the trial finally got underway in January 1995. The jury heard about a 1989 beating for which Simpson received a suspended sentence and was ordered to pay $500 to the Sojourn Center. They also heard about a 911 call Nicole made in 1993. Having established Simpson's propensity to violence, at least in their minds, prosecutors moved on the physical evidence, which culminated in the trial's most dramatic moment. I mean, do I even have to say it? We all know what it is. This was on June 15th, when, as millions watched, Simpson put on the pair of gloves police found at the murder scene and at his own home, or rather tried to put on the gloves. After struggling with the right-hand glove, he turned to his attorney, Johnny Cochran, and told them they were too tight. The moment inspired Cochran's most famous line to the jury, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Wow. I felt I feel like just reading that's a soap opera. Prosecutors maintained the gloves did fit and that Simpson's struggle was an act. I hoped everyone could see that, hope the jury could do it. What Darden Darden said later, I hoped everyone could see that. Hope the jury could see it. Oh, okay. He was speaking to the jury. But Clark knew the prosecution was in trouble, she recalled. I looked down at the bloody, weathered leather, and I said to myself, that's it. We just lost the case. As if that wasn't enough, prosecutors next had to deal with Mark Furman, the detective who had found the second glove at Simpson's home. Questioned by defense attorney F. Lee Bailey, Furman denied having used the word, the N-word, which I will not be saying, during the previous 10 years, Then, in July, I mean, we're just, this trial is soaring along, the defense got their hands on 12 hours of taped interviews between Furman and aspiring screenwriter Laura Hart McKinney. McKinney had interviewed Furman as part of her research for a screenplay about Los Angeles police. On the tapes, Furman said the word 41 times. 
Wow, she is a racist. Furman, you can't be saying that on tape, my goodness. Furman claimed he was merely playing a role for McKinney, and Edo ruled the jury could hear only two of the experts in which the detective used the word. I mean, this is a detective being blatantly racist. That was damaging enough. Hollywood never showed any interest in McKinney's work, but now her tapes reached a wider audience than any movie. Oh, she was speaking to a detective. They were both saying it. Wow. More to the point, even in their much-edited form, the jury could hear that Furman was a liar and a racist. Good. Defense attorneys were quick to accuse Furman of taking the glove from the murder scene, wiping some of Simpson's blood on it, and then planting the bloody glove at Simpson's house. How Furman got his hands on Simpson's blood was clear. Oh, wasn't clear. But the strategy was brilliant. Oh, so they couldn't prove it. With Furman's credibility shattered, the gloves once among the prosecution's strongest evidence were now a cornerstone for the case of the defense. Wow, this just goes back and forth. The defense team went after other prosecution witnesses besides Furman. Criminologist Dennis Fung, for example, hadn't noticed any blood on Simpson's socks during his initial investigation, and an FBI lab found that some of the blood contained a preservative called EDTA, which is more often found in laboratories than in humans. Someone must have put Simpson's blood on the sock in the lab, the defense concluded. Fung had also neglected to secure Simpson's bronco at the crime scene, casting doubt on any evidence found there. Some of the tainted evidence, the defense conceded, might have been the result of sloppy police work rather than a conspiracy to frame Simpson. But it was nonetheless. It was tainted nonetheless. And if the police were either crooked or incompetent, none of their evidence could be trusted. Forensic scientist Henry Lee, a defense witness, put it this way. While eating spaghetti, I found one cockroach. No sense for me to go through the whole plate of spaghetti. If you found one, it's there. Very good point, Henry. Immediately after the verdict was announced, the fingers started pointing. Furman blamed Carl Clark for not standing by him, as well as other detectives for mishandling both the physical evidence and their questioning of Simpson. Other detectives blamed Furman for his racism and Clark for failing to introduce any evidence pertaining to the Bronco chase. Clark defended her decision, arguing that bringing up the chase would have given Simpson's attorneys the chance to counter that he was not fleeing justice, but planning suicide, and the police had driven him to it. Wow, these lawyers are good, and the, the whole pro- everything's good about this. This is, oh, this is just one of those things, you know, you're reading it, and it feels like a story. It's almost, it's almost too many plot twists to be true. Some blamed Clark for not focusing too much on domestic violence, saying she should have introduced other possible motives. What if some suggested a jealous Simpson killed Nicole because he suspected she was having an affair? Faye Resnick said Nicole was having an affair with OJ's friend and fellow football star Marcus Allen, though Allen denied it. Furman, among others, believed Nicole was having an affair with Goldman, who OJ also killed. But, um, uh... There was, that was no, nothing to prove there. In the case, the jury wasn't buying the connection between the earlier incidents and the murders. This was a murder trial, not domestic abuse, juror Brenda Moraine told reporters after the trial. If you want to get tired, if you want to get tried for domestic abuse, go in another courtroom. Oh, well, good try, Brenda, trying to make an inspirational quote. Did not work. For her part, Clark blamed Darden for demanding that Simpson try on the gloves. Darden must have been on a testosterone high, she said. She blamed Ito, the judge, for excluding some of the evidence of domestic violence and for allowing Simpson, in a brief statement waiving his right to testify, to tell the jury he was innocent without having to take the stand and face any cross-examination. She blamed the media for turning the trial into a circus, which it ended up being. Above all, of course, prosecutors blamed the defense team, especially Johnny Cochran, 
for making race an issue and the jury for choosing race over justice. It wasn't a dream team that would acquit O.J. Simpson, said Clark. It was a dream jury. Millions of white Americans shared Clark's outrage. Well, I, just, I can't believe this turned into a racial thing. I mean, I'm hearing racism from one side, so from the detectives. That must have swayed some of the black jury members. Just terrible all around. Gradually, though, these passions subsided. Civil libertarians argued that the jury had plenty of non-racial reasons for its verdict. Two members of the Dream Team, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield, were specialists in the evidentiary use of DNA, and defense experts such as Lee were very effective on the stand. Clark herself conceded that the prosecution had made a fiasco of the glove demonstration and that Furman was a racist. For the jurors to have some doubts about a case in which Furman was a key witness was perfectly reasonable. It did not necessarily mean that they freed Simpson because of his race, or even that they thought he was innocent. It may merely have meant that they had doubts, reasonable doubts, which you need, about his guilt. And any criminal jury has an obligation under those circumstances to find a defendant not guilty. Hmm. How about that? Alan Dershowitz, himself a member of the Dream Team, per se, reflected the emerging consensus in his book, Reasonable Doubts. Jurors, he argued, were not supposed to be historians. The discovery of historical and scientific truth is not entrusted to a jury of lay people selected randomly from the population on the basis of their ignorance. How about that? I can't pronounce ignorance. Of the underlying facts, Dershowitz wrote, The task of discovering such truths is entrusted largely to trained experts who have studied the subject for years and are intimately familiar with the relevant facts and theories. Like historians, juries are jurors are supposed to figure out what happened, but, by, but it's by no means their only goal. If it were, Dershowitz continued, judges would not instruct jurors to acquit a defendant whom they believe probably did it, as they are supposed to do in criminal cases. At least one juror, a white woman named Anzi Aschenbach, was apparently thinking along these lines. She said after the trial that she thought O. Simpson was O.J. Simpson, oh yeah, was probably guilty, but the law wouldn't allow a guilty verdict. What? The law did, however, allow the families of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman to sue Simpson, and in February 1997, a civil jury found him liable for the deaths and awarded the victims' families $33.5 million. To some, like Dershowitz, this confirmed that the system worked. The civil jury heard much of the same evidence as the criminal one, but its verdict was based on a different standard of proof. The civil jury had only to find that a preponderance of evidence pointed to Simpson's liability. In this case, reasonable doubt was not enough to save Simpson. They almost got him. The civil libertarian view of the Simpson case is comforting. O.J. didn't get away with anything, wrote Gary Spence, seemingly one of the few famous defense attorneys who didn't join the dream team. The system worked. It revealed his guilt and at the same time preserved its safeguards for us. Similar analysis went a long way to ease the tensions that flared up after the criminal verdict. When blacks across the country cheered and whites looked on in horror, it was much safer to see the verdict as an expression of reasonable doubt than of African Americans' contempt for the justice system. Besides, O.J. was no Rodney King. It was one thing for blacks to protest the acquittal of the police officers who beat up the helpless king, quite another for them to rally around a football player and movie star who, as the legal scholar Jeffrey Abraham put it, it was more at home on white. Who was more at home on a white golf course than the black community? That's right. O.J. may have been black, but he didn't act the stereotypical black, which I don't think should matter for starters. But we're just going off of the book. And yet, much as we might like to deny it, this case clearly was about race, which I clearly see now. 
There were no issues to be, uh, there were no other issues to be sure. Marsha, oh, there were other issues to be sure. Come on, Zach. Marsha Clark was not wrong to recognize the dangers of domestic violence. Yet as Brenda Moraine's statement made clear, this was not what was foremost in jurors' minds. Money, too, was an issue. Few defendants, black or white, could have afforded the dream team. Few could have hired a renowned expert like Henry Lee or the private investigators who uncovered the Furman tapes. No matter, no wonder critic Diana Trilling argued that the M-word was as crucial as the outcome of the trial as the N-word. What's the M-word? Oh, money. Above all and undeniable, though, the issue was race. Shapiro was correct to say the defense had played the race card. Though perhaps wrong to lay the blame on Cochran, Simpson was no Rodney King, but the black community's mistrust of the Los Angeles Police Department was based on a pattern of abuse, not a single beating. Simpson, to many blacks, was merely another victim, though one with the means to fight back. Race had been there all along, commented the legal scholar Paul Butler, or at least as soon as Furman reported to the scene of the crime. Race is not a card, agreed the cultural historian Michael Eric Dyson. It is a condition shaped by culture and fueled by passions buried deep in our history that transcend reason. That's why many white folks are angry at the verdict, while many black folk feel joy. Or as Cochran put it, I just want to say something about this race card. Race plays a part in everything in America. How about that, Cochran? If you guys want to investigate any further, you can read Nicole Brown uh, Simpson, The Private Diary of a Life by uh, Faye Resnick. You can read uh, I Want to Tell You by Faye Resnick as well. Or you can read Abrahamson Jeffrey's Postmortem. A lot of other books. But those are some of the good ones. And that will conclude our mystery on O.J. Simpson. Obviously, he was guilty. I mean, we've all seen the clips. He was obviously guilty, but unfortunately to... Um, the victims, there were just outside factors. He had a lot of money. He bought himself a powerful team. And the detectives messed up. The jury messed up. And it became a racial thing. And when stuff becomes racial, it gets messed up. So there was nothing to do. Just a very sad all-around going. But, you know, O.J. did go to jail. Unfortunately, he's out now. And we'll never know for sure if he did it, but I think it's safe to assume that O.J. Simpson was Guilty, at least in my view. At least in my view of things, OJ was guilty. Oh, man, it certainly surprised me reading that. I don't know about anyone else, but gosh, it's just shocking to hear about all the things that went down on that trial. And you know, there there'll never be another trial like that. I mean, I heard people saying stuff about um Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, but that's nowhere near how this case was. Maybe if Trump, we see some tr Donald Trump in court, that could be interesting, but. Man, I can't believe that detective said the hard R 41 times on an interview with a journalist who's trying to make it big in Hollywood. Just idiots all around. How are you going to be a, you're a liar and you're a racist? Terrible traits, in my opinion, which I think should be everyone's opinion. Not to, not to say I'm perfect, but I certainly don't go around toting like that, okay? These, gosh, and I mean, how about the, um, the fact that his blood matched like one in 6.8 billion people. I mean, how do you not think he's guilty then? Gosh, just, I, I'm, I honestly did not know how much race was involved in this case. And, you know, you see it nowadays. It was alive back then. You know, that's why it's important to look at the world, not through the eyes of race, but to take into account that some people do deal with stuff. And, you know, even if it was African-Americans, choosing to go with OJ because of oppression from the police. Nothing to do now. That was 
gosh, almost 30 years ago, 20 years ago, so many years ago. All right, well, that that's kind of kind of sad though, because you know OJ kind of did get away with it, even though he was not guilty, he kind of was guilty. But now we move into something that I know for certain, and that is that UFC fight night: Gazeev, uh, Gazeev, Fuzzeev versus Gamrot, and getting my fighters mixed up goes down this Saturday. I mean. I'm happy to have one more fight card of uh, September because then next weekend for my birthday weekend, there's no UFC. I personally called Dana White. I said, Dana, you know, I just want to celebrate my birthday. I don't really want anything to do that whole weekend. So no UFC for me. And he said, Zach, you know what? Just for you. No UFC. That didn't happen, obviously. But you know what? It worked out perfectly. So (laughs) we're going to go through the 11 fight card, give our predictions for every fight. The weigh-ins are tomorrow morning, Friday. So I believe this should be going live Thursday night. So if any of these fights get canceled, you can just come back here for my main card picks. As we all know, prelim picks are unofficial. Main card picks are official. I'm going to go do something real quick, but then I'll be right back. And I'm back like I never left. It's always how it works out. I just, you know, I just magically reappear like I haven't been doing something for a number of minutes. But yes, let's uh, let's not waste any time. Let's dive into the card. Kind of a not as long episode this time around. I mean, usually at this point, I've already an hour and fifteen minutes in. But this is a throwback to our earlier days when we only had thirty-minute episodes, forty-minute episodes. And hey, you know what? It's kind of nice to just have a little chill episode. Go over Dana White. Go over um. Surprise topic, and uh, yeah, dive into UFC. Let's get it kicked off with the women's bantamweight division as we have Tamirez Tractor Videl taking on Montserrat Monsterendon. Oh my goodness. Tamirez is 7 and 1, Montserrat 5 and 0. Oh. Montserrat is 5 foot 8, Tamirez is 5 foot 6, and both women have a 68 inch reach. Montserrat is 34 years old. Tamirez, 25 years old. Doing my math correctly. Tamirez Videl will be making her second UFC appearance. She finished Ramona Pasquale in her UFC debut last November, hitting a flag knee to earn a performance bonus in three minutes. Good stuff from Tamirez. As for Montessera, she actually makes her UFC debut. She um, is 5-0, all fights by decision. She is a Mexican fighter, so sucks she just missed out on the card, but she is stepping in on short notice. And yeah, I mean, not age-wise, there is a big gap here, clearly. But honestly, Tamirez looks good, Montezera looks good. But the one key difference I see is that Tamirez has more finishes than, than Montezera has. Montezera has been the addition, the, the addition, been the distance, in all five of her fights. And I think that Tamirez has that finishing drive. I mean, she won her UFC debut in three minutes with a finish. So we are going to be predicting that Tamirez Videl gets this win in the women's bantamweight division. And in such a weak division, I mean, this this could really make the difference. I, I'll tell you that for sure. I mean, women's bantamweight is wide open at the moment with Amanda Lunes leaving And this is actually a fun fact, ladies and gentlemen. They removed the women's featherweight division from the UFC rankings. There, I think it's officially washed. I don't think the women's featherweight division exists anymore. I don't know if that's old news, if it's new news, but interesting enough. We keep it rolling with the women, but this time going down to the strawweight division as we have Mizuki 
taking on Hannah 24K Goldie. Oh my goodness, Mizuki is back. Mizuki, uh, Japanese fighter, I believe she is 14 and 6. Hannah 24K. Ooh, I wonder if she sports any gold teeth. Goldie is 6 and 3. Let's check out their stats. So. Five foot three for Mizuki, five foot four for Hannah. Sixty-five inch reach though for Mizuki, sixty-one for Hannah. So a four-inch reach advantage for Mizuki. That's about the only thing that um, is really the difference. Both women are in their twenties. Hannah Goldie coming off a loss to Molly McCann by spinning back elbow back in July of 2022. She had won on uh, episode uh, one of season three of the Dana White's Contender Series. Since then, she's gone one in three in the UFC. And yeah, her only win is an armbar over Emily Whitmer, September 18th, 2021. So it's been two years since she last won a fight and been over a year since she last fought. As for Mizuki, 14 and 6, she actually beat Wu Yanan in her UFC debut back in 2019. She last fought August 2020 when she lost by unanimous decision to Amanda Lemos. But all that tells me is that she didn't get finished by Amanda Lemos, which I think says a lot. So, I think that's the difference here. I mean, Hannah Goldie, I don't really know what I've seen from her, from her in the UFC. I remember Molly McCann knocking her out cold. She couldn't stand on the feet with her. And as for Mizuki, I just love her name. We're picking Mizuki to win by, uh, you know, if I get Tamira Vidal winning our first prelim by knockout, I'm going to give Mizuki a decision victory over Hannah Goldie. I just like her name. I mean, who doesn't like Mizuki? I mean, come on. The women's strawweight division, super fun. Rose Namajunas was actually kicked out of the UFC rankings. Carolina Kowalski coming on to the rankings along with Lupi Godinez, by the way. As an update, Angela Hill up to the number 13 spot. Tabitha Ritchie up to the number 11 spot. Luiana Pinero jumping three spots to number nine. Jan Chayonen now the number two contender at women's uh, strawweight. Pretty cool. As for women's bant, I mean, Bantamweight, we already talked about Bantamweight. As for women's flyweight, Manny Fiora is now ranked number three. Amanda Hebus ranked number 10. And Tracy Cortez is now ranked number 12. So a lot of changes happening following uh, UFC Noche. And uh, heading into this weekend. Let's move into our next fight, which I love. We go to the heavyweights. We go to the big boys. As Kamaru Usman's brother is back, Mohamed Usman takes on Jake Collier. I love Mohamed Usman. I loved him on the um, Ultimate Fighter. I've loved him uh, just watching him fight, man. He's a character. He takes on Jake Collier this weekend. Mohamed is 10-2. and two. Jake Collier, 13-9. Yikes. 6'3 for Collier, 6'2 Usman. 79-inch reach Usman, 78-inch reach Collier. So just about as even size-wise as you can get. Both men are in their mid-30s. How about that? Start with Jake Collier. Been fighting in the UFC since 2014. He is one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. He is five and eight in the UFC. How is this man still in the UFC? He's currently on a three-fight losing streak. He's uh, beaten. He's beaten Gian Viante and Chase Sherman. He last won a fight January 2022 when he submitted Chase Sherman. Since then, he's lost to Andre Arlovsky, been finished by Chris Barnett, most recently lost to Martin Boudet in April of 2023. He's also been knocked out by Tom Aspinall in 45 seconds. Wow, Jake Collier, quite the fighter. As for Mohamed Usman, he's coming from the Contender Series. He won his UFC debut to win the Ultimate Fighter 
when he knocked out Zach Pauga in round two, earning himself a performance bonus back in August of 2022. Oh, that was on the Santos Hill card where every fight was a finish. That was a good card. Following that, he had a fight in April of this year where he beat Junior Taffa thanks to 12 minutes of control time, including a notable 4-minute and 28-second control time in round number 3. He grappled Junior Taffa to death, went 2 for 12 on takedowns, a lot of clinch control. So hopefully Usman brings his knockout power. I think he's going to beat Collier here. I do think Collier will be a bit tougher than um, Junior Taffa was, so he'll probably come, come out with some more pace which is why I think Usman will get the round two knockout again. And that's not because he already has a round two knockout. It's because it's I'm just going with Muhammad Usman. He's also Kamaru's brother, so how cool would it be if he won a championship? That might be the first brother combo to win a championship. Correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, Muhammad Usman, I love it. And the heavyweights, like I was talking about earlier with Shamil, I mean, it's wide open. Martin Boudet actually recently got onto the rankings at number 15. So super exciting stuff. There, he'll probably be fighting up. Heading into our next bout is a middleweight matchup between Jacob Mamba Malkoon and Cody Brundage. Jacob is 7-2, and two, Cody is 8-5. and five. Two inches, oh, three inches in height for Cody Brundage, 6 foot to 5 foot 9. Uh, Jacob, 1 inch in reach, 73 to 72. Both men are in their 20s. Let's start out with Cody Brundage. Cody been in the UFC since he's somewhat new, right? Uh, 2020, actually lost in the Contender Series, took a short-notice fight against Nick Maximoff and lost, but then picked up back-to-back round one finishes of Dolce Luciambula and Trey Sean Gore in 2022. Following that, he would get knocked out in round one by Michael Lukajacek. He would get arm-traggled by Rodolfo Vieira earlier this year and recently lost the unanimous decision to Cedric Dumas earlier this year in June. I remember he was brutally outgrappled. That is right, 11 minutes of control time for Cedric Dumas. Despite never attempting a takedown, Cedric's got 11 minutes of control time. As for Jacob Malkoon, he's coming off a win over Nick Maximoff. This guy is 3-2 and two in the UFC. I remember his UFC debut against Phil Haas, where he got knocked out in 18 seconds. It is great to see that uh, Jacob has rebounded since then. Wins over Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, AJ Dobson, and uh, as I mentioned, Nick Maximoff. And he actually um, holds a loss to Brendan Allen, who is notably now... What is Brendan Allen? He's Brendan Allen is currently number 9 in the middleweight division, so... One of his only losses is to the number nine guy. So Jacob Alcoon's a tough fighter. If Cody Brundage is getting outgrappled by, uh, um, what's his freaking name? I just said Cedric Dumas. Then he's going to get brutally outgrappled by Jacob Malkoon. I mean, Jacob, in all of his UFC fights, so through five UFC fights, he has landed 30 takedowns. I mean, that is just insane. He's coming off a nine takedown performance, his personal best. Huza, Jacob Malkoon is going to grapple Brundage to death. And honestly, I'm going to say he submits him. I'm going to say Jacob Malkoon gets his first UFC finish, gets a submission. Let's go with him. And I believe he trains at um, City Kickboxing or trains with Robert Whitaker, one of the two. Heading into our next matchup, a fight that was on the main card but was bumped down. We have a welterweight matchup between Tim Means and Andre Fialo. Tim the Dirty Bird Means and Andre Fialo both in desperate need of a win. These guys are veterans, though. Tim Means, 32, 15, and 1. Andre Fialo, 16, and 7. Both men have a no contest to their record. Two inches in height and one inch in reach for Tim Means as he uh, 6'2", 6'4", and 75, 74. Tim, wow. 
39 years old. Tim has been doing it a long time. Andre Fialo is 29 years old. And, oh, man, Andre Fialo came to the UFC on short notice against Michelle Pajara back in 2022. Put up a good fight. Ended up losing a decision, but showed he is hard. He'd follow that up with two round one knockouts later that year over Miguel Beza and Cameron Van Camp. But since then, has been finished brutally. His last three fights, Jake Matthews knocked him out cold in round two. Muslim Salikov head kicked him in round number three and beat him. Actually been a body kick. Can't remember. And Joaquin Buckley knocked him out earlier this year in May with a kick. Was it a head kick? Someone, uh, it was a kick to head. Yes, it's coming back to me. Andre Fialo now 2-4 and four in the UFC, three-fight losing streak. This is make or break it for the man from, oh, where's he from? Oh, my gosh. He, Andre Fialo, does he fight out of S- Spain? Oh, my gosh. I, I literally had it written down somewhere. It's escaping me. Um, I know he, uh, Portugal, he's from Portugal, but I believe he fights out of the United States now. His opponent, Tim Means, I mean, we if this we never know when it could be the last moment for Tim Means, so we'll give a shout-out to the man who's been fighting in the UFC since 2012. This guy's been doing it a long time. I mean, day back to 2013, he was fighting Jorge Masvidal and Neil Magny, picking up wins over Diego Lima, um, losing to Matt Brown, losing to Alex Oliveira, uh, losing to Bilal Muhammad, uh, losing to Nico Price, beating Tiago Alves, losing to Daniel Rodriguez. In 2020, he went on a three-fight win streak, including wins over Mike Perry and uh, Nicholas Dalby. But since 2022, he's been on a three-fight losing streak, getting submitted by Kevin Holland, losing a close split decision to Max Griffin, and getting submitted most recently in May by Alex Morono. So Tim Means, not on the best stretch of his career, but you know what? He doesn't get knocked out. He just gets submitted. Andre Fialo's name of his game is striking. I say Tim Means uses his distance and outstrikes Andre Fialo through three rounds. We're giving the Dirty Bird the victory here. Love the Dirty Bird. Such a good fighter. I mean, just a legend. A legend in the game. I am happy to see that fight if I'm able to catch it. Um, Let's head into our final prelim of the night. Wow, we're already on to our final prelim. The main card looms as we have a bantamweight matchup between Dan the Determined Argetta and Miles Chapo Johns. Chapo, such a good nickname. Dan is 9-1, Miles is 13-2, both 5'7". Uh, two inches in uh, reach for Dan, 68 to 66. A southpaw fighter for Dan, orthodox for Miles. Both men near in um near in a 30, just about. Dan's 30, Miles is 29. So both men similar all around. Miles Chapo Jones been in the UFC since 2019, where he won on the Contender Series. He would win his UFC debut before getting flying kneed by Mario Bautista. Following that, he would go on a two-fight finish streak in uh, with two round three performance no- of the night knockouts of Kevin Natividad and Anderson Dos Santos. He would then get arm triangled by John Castetta last February. The last, um, actually, not last February, February 2022. He would then beat Vince Morales by unanimous decision in November of 2022. Hasn't fought since then. He's sitting at th- four and two in the UFC. Not too bad for Miles. Um, his only two career losses have been to UFC caliber people. I mean, Mauro Batista is a good loss to having a record, but John Castenda is not the best, so it's tough to say how good Miles is. As for Dan, the determined, he's had an interesting UFC career. Loses his first ever fight professionally in his debut 
June 2022 against Damon Jackson. Then in January of this year, in the first event of 2023, he would be Nick Aguirre by unanimous decision. And then he would have a overturned victory over Ronnie Lawrence due to a, what was it, a head strike? I believe that was the one where he slammed him and he got knocked out. So Dan, he's back for revenge. He's determined. Like I said, Miles Johns, if you're losing to John Costanda, I think you're going to lose to Dan the Determined. We're going with Dan Argetta by unanimous decision. I mean, this fight could easily be a caliber of um, main card. It could, this could easily be on the main card. It's kicking off the, it's ending the prelims, I should say, bringing us into the main card for a reason because it should be pretty good. And now we're in official territory, ladies and gentlemen. We are doing amazing this year. We're like plus 50. Six plus 59 fights for the main card predictions all time. We're plus 140 now, and we have just been rolling. We're coming off a two and two UFC Noche event, so we're looking to bounce back here. Let's get it rolling, ladies and gentlemen. We go to the featherweight division for a fight that was originally on the prelims, but thanks to fans, they got it bumped to the main card. We kick it off with Ricardo Ramos versus Charles. Jordan, Charles Air Jordan, the Canadian native. Ricardo is 16 and 4. Charles is 14, 6 and 1. 5 foot 9 for both men. 3 inches in reach for Ricardo over Charles, 72 to 69. Charles fights in a switch stance. Ricardo is orthodox. Both men born in 1995. Ricardo is 28. Charles, 27. Birthday is November 27th, so coming up, Charles. Charles is coming off a big win over Cron Gracie last, uh, I don't know why I keep saying last May. I should just say May 2023. That sounds better. Been fighting in the UFC since 2019. Uh, he had a fight of the night, finish of Duho Choi, then would lose to Andre Feely, draw against Josh Cuyabo, knock out Marcelo Rojo, get finished by Julian Rosa by submission, go on a little two-fight win streak over Andre Uwell and Landon Venata. And then in July of 2022, he would lose to Shane Burgos, lose to Nathaniel Wood, but he's 1-0 in 2023. So there you go, Charles. I mean, it's been kind of some awkward losses in the UFC, five losses in the UFC, matched to five wins with a draw in there. So, I mean, this could make or break it if Charles um, goes towards the rankings because the featherweight rankings wide open to enter right now, man. I mean, Leroy Murphy, Alex Caceres, Edson Barbosa, Dan Ige, Soik Yusuf, Bryce Mitchell. A lot of those guys, one loss, and they could be fighting someone outside of the rankings. His opponent, Ricardo Ramos, the Brazilian native, been in the UFC since 2017. Kind of a better record in the octagon uh, at a, what is he? He is 7-3 and three in the UFC. He kicked off his UFC tenure with a three-fight win streak, including a win over Kyungho Kang and a spinning back elbow of Ayman Zahabi. He would then get finished by Saeed Nurmagomedov, who was very talented, so I won't hold that over him. He would go on a little two-fight win streak before getting finished by Leroy Murphy. Won't hold that over him. Beat Bill Algeo. Lose to Zubera Tohigov. Might hold that over him. But last June, June 18th, 2022, so not last June, Zach, over a year ago, he would spinning back elbow Danny Chavez. But I'll tell you, I believe this layoff has hurt Ricardo. I think he needed to be more active. He's been gone a while. We got Charles Jordan. Charles Air Jordan by decision. That's right. We are going to be riding with you, Charles Jordan. And honestly, Charles was at his press conference or like the media event before the uh, the fight night. They always do like when they talk to the fighters. And he was saying how the Canadian press has been comparing him to um, 
George St. Pierre. That's right, the great George St. Pierre. And he said the comparison's unfair because he's achieved nowhere near what uh, GSP's achieved. But right now, I mean, good Canadian fighters. All you can really think of is Mike Mallett now in the UFC, Jasmine Jusevich, who just lost, Hakeem Dewoto, who's coming off a loss. But, I mean, you always have Oliver Aubin Mercier. So. But he's in the PFL, so. Actually, I, I believe he's in the PFL. He might even be in a championship, if I'm thinking correctly. We're going with you, Charles, to expand your uh, win streak to two. So hopefully good luck to you. Let's send you a personal favorite of mine. Brian Pooh Bear Battle takes on AJ the Ghost Letcher. Brian is ten and two. AJ is ten and two. Brian is six foot one. AJ five foot ten. A crazy ten inch reach advantage for Brian Battle at seventy seven inches to sixty seven for AJ. Absolutely crazy. Brian is twenty nine years old. AJ is twenty six. My goodness, ten inch reach. I'm so glad I looked at that. Uh, AJ has gone uh, actually won on the Dana White's Contender Series. I remember that season five, episode one. I was a freshman in college. He flying need Leonardo Damari and uh, two and a half minutes. Certainly good stuff from him. Very much enjoyed it. But then would lose to Matthew Semmelsberger in his UFC debut. He would then lose to Angelusa. But earlier this year in February, picked up a big submission victory. A guillotine choke over Themba Garimbo. That's right. That's Themba Garimbo is the man who The Rock gave a house. So uh, Themba, not living up to his name. I'm just kidding. He's on a one-fight win streak. But yeah, AJ, but in the UFC now, fit. He's got some experience. But Brian Battle, I mean, you're looking at your season 29. Season 29, um... Contender, not contender, ultimate fighter winner for Team Volkanovski. Beat Gilbert Urbina to win that. He would then win his UFC debut over Treshawn Gore. Have an insane 44-second head kick knockout over Takashi Soto, earning him a performance bonus on the notable Santos versus Hill card August 6, 2022. One of the greatest cards. Then he would suffer his first UFC loss, his second professional loss, when Renat Fakhradinov beat him by unanimous decision in December of 2022. But Brian took that on short notice, and Renat Fakhradinov is an animal. But he was back this year, May 13th, 2023, where he knocked out Gabe Green at 14 seconds in front of a live Charlotte, North Carolina crowd. It was crazy, a huge knockout for Brian Battle. And man, I became a big fan of him after that one. Going with Brian here by round two knockout over A.J. Fletcher. I think this reach is going to give A.J. a lot of issues. He's going to try and get in close, and when he does, Brian's going to capitalize. Hit him with some big shots, and that'll be night-night for him. So, yeah, we're going with Brian Battle, round two knockout. Should be a good one between these two. Let's head into our first of three ranked fighters on this card, ranked fight matchups, I should say. We head to the women's strawweight division as Marina Rodriguez, who's currently ranked number eight, takes on number 12 ranked Michelle Watterson Gomez. This should be a good one. Both women desperately in need of a win. Desperately, the keyword. Marina Rodriguez is 16-3-2. Michelle Watterson Gomez, 18-11. and 11. Both women average over 14 minutes of fight time. Five foot six to five foot three in favor of Marina. Same goes for reach, 65-62, so three inches in reach and height for Marina Rodriguez. Michelle Watterson, the Karate Hottie is her nickname. I figured I'd mention that. Marina is 36, I believe. Um, Michelle Watterson, 37. So, yeah, both these women getting up there in age, but still competing it out. I don't know if I got their ages right, actually. I think I might be backwards. <laughs> I don't know. 
Uh, Michelle Watterson been fighting since 2008 in strike force. Wow, been at it a long time. Wins over Jessica Penn, Paige Van Zant. I mean, she's also lost the Rose Nami Tisha Torres, beating Courtney Casey, Felice Herrick, Carolina Kowalski. Lost the fight tonight to uh, Johanna Jacek, Carla Sparza. Last win came in September of 2020, where she won a split decision fight of the night over Angela Hill, which I actually thought she lost, just to say. Since then, she actually fought Marina Rodriguez in a fight night, lost that one, also lost to Amanda Lemos in July of 2022 by guillotine choke, and most recently lost a split decision to Luiana Pinero in April of 2023. Michelle Watterson, I'd almost call her the Jorge Masvidal of the women's strawweight division, just been at it a long time. Probably still wants to fight for the belt, but time's a ticking, Michelle. And now you're already rematching someone you fought two years ago. So we'll see what comes of this, but she takes on Marina. Marina also in an interesting spot. Marina at one point was on the verge of a title shot. She debuted in 2018, winning on Dana White's Contender Series Brazil, episode two of season one. She would then have a draw over Random Marcos in her debut before going on a little two-fight win streak before having a second draw against Cynthia Calvillo. She would then suffer her first professional defeat when she lost a split decision to Carla Esparza. Following that, she would go on a huge four-fight win streak, finishing Amanda Hebas, beating Michelle uh, Warson Gomez, having a fight night victory over Mackenzie Dern, and beating Yan Cheonin by split decision. And they could have given her the title shot there, but she had to go through Amanda Lemos, who outboxed her, TKO'd her on the feet in round number three in 2022. And in shocking fashion, Marina Rodriguez would lose to the terrible, sorry, no offense, terrible Virna Jandaroba earlier this year in May, getting brutally outgrappled, got controlled for 12 minutes through three rounds. I don't get it. She was taken down in every single round, controlled for so long. An embarrassing performance for Marina. I think she bounced back here, though. I think she bounces back, guys. Marina, I think, is the more uh, the more suited for the top 10 currently than Michelle Watterson. I don't know. I was so shocked she lost that Verna Jandaroba fight. But I'm going with Marina Rodriguez by unanimous decision over Michelle Watterson Gomez. And honestly, Michelle could retire. Her time's in nearing. But, man, Marina, so close to being getting a title shot, which I thought she could have even won. And now finds herself fighting someone she fought two years ago and someone who she should not be fighting, but... She's put herself in this situation. I think she gets it done. I think she uh, outboxes her through three rounds. And the last time they fought, she was up 3-0, heading into uh, round four, I believe. So there's that. We move on to the featherweight division, which is, oh, if you want to call it the people's main event. It's going to be so good. Number, where's he at now? Number 12, Danny Gay takes on number 10 ranked Bryce Mitchell. Oh, boys, this is one to keep your eye out for. Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell, 15-2, and two, takes on 17-6, and six, Dan 50K, Ige. Oh my goodness, 5'10 to 5'7 in favor of Bryce Mitchell, 71 inches reach to 70 in favor of Dan Ige. Bryce fights Southpaw, orthodox for Dan Ige. Bryce Mitchell, 29 years of age, Dan Ige, 32 years of age, birthday was on August 6th. Dan, a 50K Ige, been doing it in the UFC since 2017, where he won in the Contender Series. He would sadly lose his UFC debut to Julio Ars, but then he would follow that up with a crazy six-fight win streak, including wins over Danny Henry by rear naked choke, Mike Santiago by TKO, 
Split decision wins over Mirsad Bektic and a controversial one over Edson Barbosa in 2020. No shot he won that fight. It was close, but Edson clearly won that. Forgain his first fight of the night, or not fight of the night, but a fight night main event, I should say, where he would get outboxed by Calvin Cater. He followed that up with a crazy, one of my favorite knockouts I've ever seen. Gavin Tucker knocked him out in 22 seconds, one punch of the fight. Absolutely crazy. After that, he would lose a fight, a uh, main event to Chan Sung Jung, the Korean Zombie, the Korean Zombie's last UFC win. After that, he would also lose to Josh Emmett, then to Mosbar Evloff, but he would snap his three-fight losing streak when he finished Damon Jackson with another crazy knockout, one of the better ones earlier this year, earning himself a performance bonus. He last fought at UFC 289 in June, where he beat Nate Lambert by unanimous decision. No idea how he didn't finish Nate. He threw so much at Nate, and Nate just ate it. Danny Gay reds a two-fight win streak into this one. And he packs a lot of power with that hand of his. I don't know. So if he it might be his right hand, might be his left hand. Either one will put you out. Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell. I mean, there's a guy who came into the UFC off the content, undefeated contender series. Um, not the contender series, guys. Sorry, the Ultimate Fighter. Keep getting those shows mixed up when I speak. Um, and he suffered his loss on there, and it went on his record. He always protested that. But he would come back, he would beat Tyler Diamond, have a fight the night against Bobby Moffett, would do the second twister of all time, this twister submission against Matt Sales in December of 2019. Absolutely crazy stuff, did it in round one. Followed up with one of the most crazy control fights I've ever seen over Charles Rosa. Controlled him for 12 minutes and 51 seconds, including a notable 4 minute and 52 second round three ground control time. Crazy stuff from uh, Bryce over Charles. He would then beat Andre Feely in a sloppy fight. He would then dominate Edson Barbosa last year in March. That was actually the last time Colby Covington fight on that card. He would control uh, Edson for 11 and a half minutes, outstrike him 182 to 23, go 4 for 4 in takedowns, and even dropped him in round number one. But then Bryce ran into the future featherweight champion, if folks not around, Iatopura. Absolutely ran through him last December at UFC 282. But actually, you know, Bryce actually outstruck him and landed a takedown round number one. But the shots from Ia were landing more. Ia started getting the hang of it, dropped him, got on the ground, locked in an arm triangle from side control, and Bryce had to tap. Bryce says that he was sick that night. He makes a lot of excuses. He's a clown, but you know what? He's a good fighter. And I think Danny Gay's nemesis is grappling. You know, that's why he lost to Mozart Evloff. Also why he lost to... Um, Korean Zombie and the Calvin Cater. He, Calvin Cater landed a takedown on that. Should say something. So we're gonna go with Bryce Mitchell by unanimous decision. Could even be split decision, but I do think that'll be uh, Danny Gay's weakness here. But if he can get past the grappling, he could easily knock out <laughs> Bryce Mitchell with one punch. I mean, do not underestimate Dan Fifty K E Gay. Love that nickname, by the way. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Now it brings us to our main event of the evening. It's a fun one. I love it. Rafael Fazeev versus Matus Gamrat, the number six and seven ranked lightweights in the world. Whew, this is very competitive. I, I, I'm still torn on who I want to pick for this one. Rafael Ottoman Fazeev, the legendary Muay Thai fighter. Leg kicks are of legend. Matus Gamer Gamrat, the decision machine. Boasts an impressive 22-2 record. Rafael's 12-2 himself. 
Um, uh, five foot ten to five foot eight in favor of Matus. Seventy-one inch reach to seventy in favor of Rafael Baziv. Switch stance for Rafael. Seventy. A uh, uh, southpaw, I should say, for Matus. Matus is actually thirty-three years. Actually, thirty-two years old. Turns um thirty-three December eleventh. Uh, Rafael, thirty years exact. Birthday was on March fifth. Hmm, how about that? Matus Gamrot. Suffered his first career loss in his UFC debut against Guram Kurladze. That fight is uh, another one where Guram, on the post-fight interview, said, I didn't win this fight. The wrong hand was raised. That should say something about judging nowadays. That was a fight in the night, though. His first professional loss was a split decision. It didn't let him rock him. Follows that up with a round two knockout of Scott Holtzman by TKO. Then with Kimura, Jeremy Stevens in just over a minute. Knockout Diego Ferreira with a knee. And have an amazing fight against Armin Tazukrian in 2022. Earning fight of the night honors. Showed off his crazy grappling. But then, last October 2022, got humbled by Benil Dariush. Despite landing four takedowns on him. Got dropped. Got outstruck. Followed that off, though, with a big win over Jalen Turner by split decision this past March at UFC 285. Showed some good grappling in that one. Managed to control Jalen for 6 minutes and 52 seconds. I will say the one notable stat I would take note of is that out of his six UFC fights, actually, his seven UFC fights, he's been dropped five times. Five times. He's been dropped by Armin, Guram, Benil, and Jalen. Oh, only four times. My bad, Matus. My bad. He dropped someone. That's what I saw. So, and he's fighting a man, Hafa Aziv, whose name of the game is um, striking. So, it's just truly a striker versus a grappler. Hafa Aziv. Been the UFC since 2019, lost his uh, UFC debut with similar situation as um, Matus Garamont. Lost his first UFC fight. This time, though, he got spinning back kicked by Magomed Mustaf, which I think is just one of those Mirko Krokop, Gabriel Gonzaga situations where the guy gets beat with their own signature, which was a Muay Thai spinning back kick. But you know what? That did not derail Havel at all. He would go on a tear six-fight win streak, including on that, I mean, Two fight of the nights, three performances. Uh, fight of the nights, Mark Diakise. He knocked out Namoikano in round one. Knocked out Brad Riddell with a spinning back kick in round two. Knocked out Rafael Dos Anjos in round number five. This guy can hang. But just like Benil humbled Matus, Justin Gaethje humbled Rafael Faziv. He beat him uh, earlier this year by, um, what was it? He beat him by unanimous deci- majority decision at uh, UFC 286. Good stuff. From uh, Justin and Rafael. I mean, Rafael struck him in round one, but then Gaethje took over and outstruck him through the last two rounds. Actually, you know what? He actually outstruck Gaethje through the first two rounds, where round three was a very dominant one in favor of Rafael Fazeev. So, Rafael's coming in off a loss. Matus is coming off of a win. Both kind of in an awkward spot where they're not at a level where they can fight Michael Chandler, Dustin Poirier. But they're also not at a level where they should be fighting Dan Hooker, Grant Dawson, you know? So this will really determine who fights upwards into the top five and who fights down into the bottom 15. Personally, I've been torn between both of these. I, I'm honestly just going to go in neutral on who I want to win, but that's not how we do we do it here. We don't go in neutral. We do have to pick someone. And simply because I watch Hafel's gas tank deplete against Justin Gaethje, and simply because I know Matus can grapple you for days, I'm going to go with Matus Gamrot by round four submission just because I like to predict finishes and on verdict it gives me more XP. 
I don't know how that's going to go, per se, but, I mean, it could be certainly very interesting if he pulls off a submission, which would be crazy. I don't know if that'll happen. Probably just a decision, but certainly will be a good card. So we're going with Matus Gamera, round four submission, just to spice it up. Let me give you a recap of my picks. We'll start with the prelims unofficially. Tamir's Vidal over Montezaret Rendon by, uh, we'll say, knockout in round one. Mizuki over Hannah Goldie by unanimous decision. Mohamed Usman over Jake Collier by round two knockout. Jacob Malkoon over Cody Brundage by round three submission. Tim Means over Andre Fialo by unanimous decision. Dan the Determined Argetta over Miles Johns by unanimous decision. Charles Jordan over Ricardo Ramos by, we'll say, split decision. Brian Battle over AJ Fletcher by round two knockout. Marina Rodriguez over Michelle Watterson Gomez by unanimous decision. Bryce Mitchell over Dan Ige by unanimous decision. And Matus Gamma by round four submission. The official picks are Charles Jordan, Brian Battle, Marina, Bryce, and uh, Matus. All the others don't technically count unless a fight gets bumped up. Then we can refer back to the video. But yeah, certainly going to be a good card. I'll probably be checking it out. It's, a, it's an Apex card, so I mean, nothing too exciting. But hey. You know what? I'm happy we get UFC. And I'm happy I was able to do this just a little typical episode. Talk about some UFC. Go over a surprise topic. And give you guys a little info about OJ Simpson. And Danny White's Contender Series. We went over a number of things. So thank you guys for listening. I mean, I don't got much left to say. I mean, good weekend ahead. Good weekend of football. All my picks were dropped on last episode. Uh, I believe the 49ers are currently f uh, playing right now against the Giants. 49ers was my pick. Hopefully they win. And yeah. Good uh, good weekend ahead of us, and yeah, next episode will probably be Monday or Tuesday recapping, and there'll only be there'll only be one episode next week, so I might actually save it for like Wednesday, because we'll be recapping. Actually, yeah, so I'll either drop it Monday or Wednesday. We'll see. So I'll I'll be in touch with you guys. Okay, I appreciate everyone listening. Have a wonderful wonderful weekend. As I've said, God bless. <laughs>